1: Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.
0: Hello, I'm Farajisat, and I'm the producer of How I Found My Voice, a podcast by Intelligence Squared. We hope you enjoyed this episode, but just before the main event, I wanted to let you know that this season of How I Found My Voice is sponsored by The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you live in London, like me, and want to get out of the city for a weekend, The Out is designed for us. It's a premium car rental service without the hassle. Just download the app, book your vehicle, and a car will be delivered to your doorstep within three hours of booking. When you're done, the car will also be picked up from your chosen location. My colleague recently used the service and loved how easy it was. He went on a last-minute weekend trip to Brighton using a Land Rover Discovery Sport. They have a whole range of premium vehicles to choose from, including the Range Rover Sport and the all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. In every booking, you get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance, and even the congestion and dart charge included. So if you're a Londoner who wants to rent a car in style, download the Out app today. Now let's go to
2: this week's episode. Steve Bannon is American Isis. rather than stopping a process of radicalization he wanted to create an insurgency in the united states that he could control when you look at a lot of whistleblowers a lot of them are queer they come out both as a queer person but also as a as a whistleblower to tell people uncomfortable things i don't know if you've ever been to like a, a you know a pride parade but people blow whistles all the time
3: Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed and I'm going behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did artists, writers, politicians and business leaders grow up to become such great and unique communicators? And how do they use their voices to highlight issues that they feel passionate about? If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to subscribe and please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. My guest today is a whistleblower. Chris Wiley, a data consultant, a computer expert with a lifelong passion for politics and citizen power who went public about one of the biggest political scandals of our time, the misuse, the abuse of data by his former employer Cambridge Analytica to influence the outcome of major elections, notably Britain's EU referendum. You may first have heard about him when he testified in a suit with his wildly coloured hair and his nose piercing before a parliamentary committee of MPs last year. He had shocking revelations about the scale of covert operations around the world. His book, Mindfuck, is a fascinating account of his career and his concerns. Chris, thank you so much for coming in to speak to us. You grew up on Vancouver Island on the west coast of British Columbia. It sounds rural and idyllic. What was it like?
2: Well, it is kind of Like it sounds. You look outside to the beach and there's seals and whales and, you know, it's filled with old growth trees that are almost a thousand years old. You know, it is kind of how you would imagine an island off the coast of Canada to be.
3: And what kind of household were you growing up in and what were you like as a small child?
2: So both my parents are physicians and I have two younger sisters, so I'm the, the oldest of three.
3: And this is what is it, the nineteen eighties when you're late nineteen eighties nineties when you're trying to work out your age. Oh
2: uh, yeah, I was born in nineteen eighty nine actually, so just the the tail in the last uh, six months of the eighties. So I'm technically an eighties kid. Okay, but I grew up in the in the nineties.
3: And what kind of child were you?
2: Talkative and inquisitive. Apparently, according you know, according to my parents, I read uh, encyclopedias when I was a kid. Apparently,
3: oh really, gathering yeah. data.
2: Yeah, you know, I've always been a qu- quite a curious. Person, I guess in multiple senses of the word. And from a, a, an early age, quite a, assertive with schools and structures and things well, like that. Well, tell
3: me about the, uh, being assertive with schools and structures.
2: I don't use a wheelchair anymore, but when I was growing up, I did have a, a, an invisible disability. So, you know, growing up, I, I had to spend a lot of time voicing myself, you know, like going into a classroom and like, I don't fit in the classroom, like there's no desk for me, like I can't use the doorway. The only place I can be is like at the very back because I, you know, so tucked in a corner somewhere, right? So constantly having to, you know, voice myself. My parents were, you know, the the catalyzers of that, I think. They're not necessarily loud and rambunctious people themselves, but, you know, understood that in order to like be successful at school, you need to be able to, you know, be part of that school.
3: Did they actually take kind of a uh, civil action against the school over
2: um, there, things? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I was a teenager, there were several different um, uh, legal actions that uh, did go to court with the school district and Ministry of Education for uh, supervision and bullying policies to, you know, ensuring that schools comply with both, like, educational requirements and then also, like, human rights legislation. One of the things that I sort of saw is, like, when you're dealing with either a school district or the Ministry of Education, you have to be noisy in order to uh, get noticed. And that's something that I, that I learned very early on, is that you have to be as noisy as possible and almost as, as irritating as possible in order to continue to be part of a conversation.
3: Can you give me an example of how you used that then in your life at school?
2: There was a uniform policy at the school you had to have, I think the rule was like naturally colored hair or like, or natural colors in your hair. You could dye your hair, but you, you know, you could dye it blonde or brunette or whatever. And so I just dyed it purple. It was one of these things where it's like, all right, well, you're not listening to me. And then all of a sudden you pay attention to me when I'm breaking this rule. So you'll call me into like a principal's office to talk about my hair and say, okay, cool. We can talk about my hair, but I'm going to talk about your inclusion policies too. And it's kind of funny I've had sort of weird hair ever since. It does mean that people pay so much more attention to you if you, like, have purple hair. And so if that creates a space where you can then actually have a conversation, you know, I used that.
3: Can I ask, you were diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia as a teenager. Did that affect your ability to communicate?
2: You know, it's kind of a funny one because... uh, I think I do kind of think differently to a lot of people, and also like a d h d is one of those things where it's like is the problem me or is the is it just the environment? if I were like back you know a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago or whatever and to like exploring a forest or whatever, and if I got bored easily and I just started exploring more maybe it, that's actually an asset. You know, maybe I'm the one that then, you know, figures out that there's like a, a, you know, a new place that we can like find food, forage for food over there. There's a berry forest. Is it a... It's about perception. Is it? Yeah. I mean, because to me, I feel like I think I've used it to my advantage. Yes. But it also is technically a disorder.
3: Now, you became fascinated by computers. Yeah. Why? And do you remember the web page that you designed at the age of 13?
2: Yeah. So when you're at school... And you're in a wheelchair. It is, or at least was for me, you know, a fairly isolating thing. Rather than going outside, because you know, in some, there weren't ramps everywhere. Even like you know, some some parts I could just couldn't go to. But I could go to the computer lab. And the first website that I made um, had a bunch of Flash animations. Back when people worked with Flash animations, mm-hmm. and it was like the Pink Panther. <laughs> Um, with the, you know, with the, the song and, captain. yeah, and, you know, the inspector chasing him yeah, around. And it was them. it was kind of stupid. It was a pointless, like, it didn't have any point to it other than, like, there was, like, an animation of, like, the Pink Panther and there's, like, the inspector and they kind of just, like, roam around on the screen and the song plays and that's it, you know. But, like, that's quite a cool thing to be able to make. And, you know, learning that, uh, you know, you can also express yourself with a computer you know, it was quite a thing, I think. Later when I became, you know, a teenager and adolescent, and I guess my acting out was um to just like not show up to school. But it wasn't that I was just, you know, being a, a truant and like a like a bad boy on the street or whatever. Like I ended up going to like political events and Whoa.
3: Tell me about this. So you you became fascinated by what they call in Canada and the US town hall debates where politicians and public yeah. figures come and the audience are the ones asking all the questions. Yeah.
2: When you think about the difference between like a classroom, right, where, first of all, I usually had to sit at the back. So I'm sitting at the back listening to some teacher tell me about some white dude's version of colonial history, um, you know, and you can't say anything about it. Or, you know, what about this? What about that? But in a town hall, like you can go, you can get the mic and you can say what you think to the person who's also standing at the front of the room, but they have to listen to you. For me, that was quite an empowering thing because, you know, I'd sit and think a lot about stuff and some of the aides to some of the MPs that would host these events noticed that there's this like teenager with weird hair always coming, probably should be in school, but some for some reason isn't. And like talking about Canada's foreign policy, like just random things. like, um, And so I got asked if I wanted to do an internship at the Canadian Parliament in Ottawa. And I was just like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, I'm going to do that. How gonna... old are you? 17. So I went and very quickly sort of got, I guess you could say promoted or new opportunities were thrown my way. So this would have been like 2007, 2008, before even Obama was president people weren't even using social media. This is like pre-social media. This is when like emails were like avant-garde for campaigns and parties had websites. But like tech wasn't considered, you know, tech or digital wasn't considered like a core part of political strategy. So I got given just by the sort of luck and chance of where I was at that moment in time a ton of responsibility. What now would be considered like quite a serious, you know, running digital. Yes. You know, for a a national party or a national leader or whatever is like a very, you know, important job now in politics. But like...
3: So what were you doing?
2: So I was working for the leader of the opposition. This is the Liberal Party. For the Liberal Party, which is the largest sort of progressive party in in, in Canada. This is also when the US primaries were just starting to, to rear up. And they were really interested in... You know, what, like what are those Americans doing with all that, like all those YouTube videos and like, that's like some kind of next gen campaigning thing. And so like, token kid in office, you know about the, the computers, like, can you go down and like learn about what they're doing in the States? So I got this really cool opportunity to do like a secondment down in the United States, where I was going around and looking at different campaigns to learn about what they're doing. Ended up with the Obama campaign. And there I met um, a guy by the name of Ken Strasma, who was the um, director of uh, analytics and targeting for the campaign, for the Obama campaign. Very quickly, I started to realize how really cool like all of this data was. Because one of the things that I learned that I had never sort of thought about or realized was that one of the reasons why Obama could be so engaging uh, with new kinds of voters that typically are well, systemically disenfranchised, you know, people of colour or Mm -hmm. single women with kids. And so they had to work extra hard to figure out what is going to motivate that single mom who has two jobs and a kid to in between, because you don't get like time off to vote there. In a lot of states, like, you you know, you've got some job at like a, you know, McDonald's or Burger King or whatever, they'll be like, you know, it's not my problem. And so if you're that person and you've got, you know, 40 minutes between job one and job two, like you've really got to be motivated to go and vote. And so the role of data was to figure out, like, what's going to motivate that person? What do we need to to say or show in order to become as relevant as possible to really motivate them to vote? And so I saw like this really cool thing where it's like we're using math we're using data about people to like try to get people who typically don't engage with politics to come and engage with politics
3: and how did you do that what was the gist of it given the technology at the time yeah so um
2: in the united states there's data markets so when you subscribe to a magazine or you take out a mortgage even like when you go to the state office and get like a hunting license or whatever, all of this like is captured about you. So this information is like specifically related right. to your name. And these name. lists could be sold. And these lists, you could acquire those lists. And so there was all this sort of consumer data that the campaign acquired. And then also all the canvassing data, everything went into this one system. It was called the VAN, Voter Activation Network. A lot of the time it was fairly intuitive. Like if you are a, you know, white, middle-aged man in, like, rural parts of a Republican voting state, and you have a hunting license, and you drive a pickup truck, and you da-da-da-da-da-da, da you are like, a Republican, right? Like, And it's like, but when you're a campaign, right, and you've got hundreds of millions of voters, you can't individually look at every person and go, ah, he's a Republican, or she's a Democrat, or, you know, probably swings both ways. So the whole point of building an algorithm is to create that intuition for for the campaign. You know, I saw this and I was like, whoa, this is so cool. And I also got lucky enough to be invited to the inauguration. I went to the, uh, one of the official inaugural balls and I got to watch Barack Obama with Michelle dancing and being introduced as the president of the United States. For me at the time, I was like, wow, this is like the future of bringing people into, like, the democratic process. Like, this is, like, really cool.
3: Let me take you from that to London because at 21, you moved to London to study at the London School of Economics, the LSE. Yeah. And straight away, again, you're working for a political party. The Lib Dems called you in who had heard about your work with data. Yeah. And I guess had they just got involved with the coalition government led by the Conservatives? Yeah, it was
2: just after the election so that in 2010.
3: Been 2010. Um, what was your experience of working for them and how how important was it?
2: Oh, uh, where do I begin? Um, so the reason i moved to the uk was when i was back in canada still working for the 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 leader of the party i had a group of i called them my office mums so they had been around the party for like decades like 30 40 years like they were they were they'd seen everything right and they took me out to the french part of ottawa gatineau they were french speaking they they sit me down and they're like, Chris, look at us. We are so old. We are divorced. We don't have kids. We, like, have given our lives to the party. Like, you're so young. Don't become like us. Like, oh. da, da, da. And they essentially were like, you should enjoy being a young person while you can. But, like, working in politics is a bit like working in the mafia where you can try to leave, but, like, you're never really gone.
3: Well, you're a person of interest. And, yeah. And tell me about you. Got this call when you were in and a so, and so and so
2: I moved. So I thought the reason I picked Britain was because I was like, it's across an ocean, it's a five hour time difference. Like, no one's gonna be like, Chris, we we come back in, we we need you to do something. I'm I'm in a different continent. Yeah. But
3: you, so you were trying to and, escape politics, and yet it, and it then didn't happen.
2: Immediately, I get to London, and it was like the first or second week that I was here, like still kind of jet lagged, even you know, and I. Get a call, and it was just a random call, and it was from somebody who's working for Nick Clegg, who had just become the deputy prime minister, and they had heard through the grapevine that I'd moved to the UK, and they were having just joined government. You know, this tiny party that hadn't been in government for like a hundred years or something like that. You know, all of a sudden is now. In you know the the big leagues, like running a country and, and what did
3: they want to do with and you? they
2: needed how they they didn't they needed help modernizing like becoming like a real political operation that wasn't just like effectively a glorified talk shop for like bearded white dudes who wear sandals and, well, you
3: know what's really interesting in your book is you talk about one how antiquated their old system was and they were obsessed with leafleting absolutely obsessed with leafleting they had great and they
2: still are Lib Dems love leafleting
3: (laughs) but also that it was hard you said you found it hard to define uh, Lib Dem voters as opposed to people describe themselves as Tory or as Labour yeah yeah
2: so I got asked essentially to help them implement and and anglicise the American voter targeting system and the Obama campaign which I, I had worked with both in the United States and then also brought it to Canada And so they wanted essentially help bringing it to Britain. And so I said, okay, sure. Like, of course, I say yes. And, um, you know, I start my sort of uh, foray into British politics and learning about British voters. And, you know, the purpose of collecting all this data is to model it, to try to anticipate, you know, when you're when you have a campaign, you know, most of the people working on campaigns are volunteers, you only have so many hours, you only have so much money. And yet, you've got an entire country of people to reach out to, often in a very limited time with an election, right? So the whole role of modeling is like, who are the voters that you actually need to talk to in order to become successful? When you look at Britain, there there are geographic and demographic, you know, relationships to being a, a labor voter or being a Tory, right? So you can think about, you know, posh dude in South of England, Tory. If you're... Afro-Caribbean on a council state in South London labor. But right? Lib Dem? But Lib Dem, it's like WTF is a Lib Dem. Like what, what, what is a Lib Dem? In data terms, in demographic terms, they could look sometimes like a Tory or they could look sometimes like a labor voter. And so I then kind of went out and started exploring like okay, Lib Dems exist. I'm going to make the assumption that Lib Dems are real. Um, and so if they're real and I, I'm measuring something that's wrong if I can't predict it. So I needed to figure out what was I missing. So I go out and I talk to lots of people all around the UK. And one of the things that I started noticing is that when people would talk about how they vote or the way they engage with politics, Labour voters and Tories would often say, like, oh, my family's Labour or my family's Tory or I am Labour, I'm Tory. Lib Dems, because the Lib Dems in its modern form had only been around since like the 80s. Yeah, because
3: it's a merger between the old liberal party yeah, and the Yeah, And it was it was a
2: merger of two tiny parties. So very few people actually grew up in a liberal household, like my oh, I come from a liberal family, right. right? Almost no one would say that. So long story short, realizing that you know, when people say I vote Lib Dem, rather than I am Lib Dem, they grew up as in a labor household or a Tory household. They moved right? So for them, it's a behavior, it's an opinion, it's a choice. It's not necessarily a core identity. The people who had the sort of type of characteristic where you were more open-minded yet at the same time more assertive in what you believed gave you sort of the like the chutzpah, so to speak, to leave labor or leave to right, leave these two big parties that you grew up with who win government and join this small mm. little party. And you do it because it's like you think that they're right. And you don't care if they win or not. It's like it's it's about the idea for you.
3: Just briefly, I'm interested then in what did you learn from how you identified Lib Dem voters?
2: The reason why I couldn't predict Lib Dem voters well with demographic data was that because was because that wasn't the most important thing leading a person to becoming Lib Dem. It was it was a, a constellation of personality traits. And I sort of came to this sort of understanding after talking with a lot of professors at the University of Cambridge in the psychology department who were studying voter behavior. Mm. And so this sort of light bulb went on in my head, which is like, oh, like Lib Dems are sort of like the Richard Dawkins type, right? It's like, you know, a scientist, you know, or at the same time, maybe an artist, but people who are like interested in ideas, but also kind of like a bit bitchy. Like they're like, (laughs) I know I, I'm i exploring this idea that's not popular, and I don't care if it's not popular. So you've got people who care about ideas more so than the average person, and also like don't care if it's popular or not. They they want that the integrity of the idea. Mm. And then I was like, wait a second. We are in a coalition government. So we've got a base of support of people who don't see it as their identity. They choose it. And also they chose us, the Lib Dems, because they wanted integrity of ideas. And they didn't care whether or not it was popular. They wanted to maintain the integrity of the idea. Mm -hmm. But when you look at a coalition government, it's all about compromise. It's all about ideological compromise. And so, you know, one of the things that I then became very concerned about, which I tried to express to the party, which is like the, the people who support us are the types of people that don't want to compromise. And that's why they support us.
3: And of course, then they got because if Because if they, if they, they the wanted to compromise, they would
2: continue voting Labour or yeah. continue voting Tory. These big tent parties, you know, that have to accommodate all kinds of different people, yeah. right? They chose us for, for, a, a re, for the fact that we were saying things that others weren't willing to so do. So you
3: warned the party of this. Yeah, they did not go down you. well,
2: you know, did not go down well. And so it wasn't working out well. I left, but... Some of the people who I did get on with in the party, they introduced me to a firm called SCL Group, Strategic Communications Laboratory. SCL Group at the time was a military contractor, a British military contractor that did work for the Ministry of Defence here in in London but also for the Pentagon in the US on information operations and psychological operations. I started, you know, at SCL when it was looking at how to profile People who were vulnerable to being radicalized. This is when Steve Bannon was just like the editor of Breitbart. This is before he was the Steve Bannon, right? But when he got introduced to Alexander Nix and, and SCL, the who firm. Who is your boss? Who is my boss? You know, he was struggling with sort of mainstreaming Breitbart.
3: Can you just tell me how you came to work with Alexander Nix? Because what's very clear in your book is. How quickly you realize he's this strange, arrogant Etonian, and there's some very dodgy stuff, you know, working with African nations who are trying to maintain power. Mm. Um, and you're you're trying to do good work, but it's pretty obvious that the company you're working for is doing some pretty ethically borderline stuff.
2: Yeah. so my whole journey with SCL was an education, I think, in the modern sort of incarnation of colonialism. And, and this is
3: when government ministers are coming and diverting funds to pay Cambridge Analytica to help manipulate I saw, like, elections. bribery.
2: I saw extortion. I saw, like, you know, all kinds of really unsavory things. And the way it was sort of explained to me is like, well, this is how Africa works. This is how India works. This is how the Caribbean works. And
3: why did I have to ask? Because You've been asked it before. Why did you not decide to leave or whistleblow earlier, given some of the stuff that you were seeing like this? And the overt racism, which you talk about as well, from Alexander Nix.
2: I remember this this conversation with him. He told me, you can still be like the minister of defense of a, a large African nation. But I can still sit down with them in Mayfair, in my private club, and they know that I'm still their social superior. Because I went to the school that they couldn't get into. I speak the way that they can't. And I come from here and they don't. And the reason why they keep coming back and they keep giving us contracts is because they can pretend for a moment in time that they are like me. Being 24, I'm Canadian. I don't, I'm not really from this place. And it's just sort of like, it's this guy kind of explaining, well, this is how the real world works. And when we got acquired by um, uh, Robert Mercer, who is a right wing hedge funds billionaire, later became the largest donor to the Republican Party. He installed Steve Bannon to uh, become the new boss. He had this, he saw the same kind of cohort of like these young unmarried men in America who were really angry um, and could be provoked, you know, if provoked with with the right narrative. You know, very quickly we moved from working on projects in Africa You know, for British interests to looking at the same kind of targets of radicalization that you would see with, you know, uh, extremist uh, jihadist groups in North Africa or in the Middle East. But rather than trying to mitigate or intervene in a radicalization process, the work that we were doing was inverted so that we would still be looking at the same kinds of young unmarried men who were more prone to paranoid ideation, who had particular you know, social or economic grievances, but in, instead they were brought in to be radicalized.
3: Well, let's talk about that because this is kind of Steve Bannon's Great Culture War. In the book, you talk about the idea of damming up progressive ideas and culture yeah. and reversing the flow. That was his goal.
2: Yeah. Steve Bannon, you know, wanted to create an insurgency in America. He could see how his people, the people who he wanted to engage, were the same kinds of people that we were studying for military clients. Rather than stopping a process of radicalization, he wanted to create an insurgency in the United States that he could control.
3: But also, it's the title of your book, Mindfuck. It's kind of completely disrupting the way that... um Politics and yeah. and voting it's, had worked before.
2: Yeah, I called it Mindfuck because all the weird things that I saw behind the scenes for me was just a, a Mindfuck. But at the same time, it was also about fucking with people's minds.
3: Now, you said to some extent you, start, you were really burying yourself in work. But there comes a point where you decide, Yeah. I can't do this anymore. Yeah. I have to go public. I think there's criminality. I think something bigger is at stake. What was that moment and why did you use your voice to go public?
2: Well, um, I learned a lot about how sitting in a, in a position of privilege can kind of isolate or sort of distance you from things that happen to other people. When you're looking at a database, when you're typing code in Python and like looking for, you know, can you predict attribute x or y, it becomes kind of easy to forget like this is not just a thing that you're doing mm-hmm. on your computer, the the product of your work later on actually affects mm-hmm. people. Briefly, the way it would sort of work is all this data was uh, sort of readily accessible on, on Facebook because there was very loose um, oversight of their, of their platform at the time. So Facebook apps could pull in data, not just of people who were using the apps, but also all their friends. Yeah. The algorithms that were built to identify people who were more prone to neuroticism or paranoid ideation, these would become like a target profile. Those people would then be shown ads on Facebook to encourage them to join, for example, a Facebook group, a page, um, a forum, a chat room, these people would be encouraged to talk amongst themselves. Once those groups re- reached a, a certain threshold, they would then receive invitations to actual events, right, in their county or town or whatever, right? And even if like 5 to 10% of people showed up, um, you would then get, you know, say 50 people showing up at a local coffee shop. And expecting what? To chat about the stuff that they've been chatting about online. Such as? So, things like, you know, what is the deep state actually doing? Oh,
3: so, real conspiracy. What is the deep stuff. state
2: doing? Did you know about all these relationships between these like banks and these Jewish organizations and all of these? It, became, it was very racially tinged. It touched on something called, which, which in the alt right they call race realism, mm-hmm. right? So, imagine you're this person. So, you've spent a couple months, you're clicking on all these things. Then you go and you go to the local coffee shop. And this moment in time sort of evolves your digital fantasy into something that is like very tangible and real to you because you're now talking to a guy who lives in the same neighborhood as you, right? Who's an electrician or a teacher yeah. or whatever, doesn't have an agenda, just as another concerned American like you are. And they're talking about the deep state. And at that moment, when they then start looking at, you know, CNN or read the New York Times or whatever, you know, quote unquote, mainstream or credible news new, news sources, they don't see any of the things that they are seeing everywhere online. And now that they're literally talking to people, the people that they're talking to, the neighbors, they don't have an agenda. But CNN does. And I know that CNN does because I know that CNN is owned by this person who's related to that person who's related to that person. And so that's fake news. That's propaganda. That They are trying to continuously brainwash me to pacify me because of a large conspiracy. And the reason I'm poor and the reason I can't get a job and, frankly, even the reason I can't even get laid or get a date is because they're trying to stop me. And this is the thing that's pacifying me. And so to get back to your original question about, you know, what triggered me to sort of, I think, understand better, like, what actually I was contributing to is... Watching videos of people who had been drawn through this process for several months. And to see the rage in their eyes. To look at just how angry they are at something that's not real. And that everything in their world now, their entire world view, that has now led them to this rage that they have. Where they're ready to explode. Um, where they feel humiliated, they feel angry, they, they are just ready to do something. And watching that and going, they don't know that the reason they feel this way is because everything that they've clicked on, even all the people that they've now met, there's a group of people in London, in Russia, in Eastern Europe, and in the United States, people who are all mapping out how they think and how they feel and guiding them down a path to start developing this worldview. And that their worldview is, is, is now what Steve Bannon wants their worldview to be. In the same way that ISIS would encourage you to stop listening to you know, your imams, stop listening to your parents, stop watching the news, and only listen to us. And looking at that and thinking back to, you know, the work that we started doing, looking at extremist groups in North Africa or in the Middle East, and then looking at what Steve Bannon was trying to do. And I was like, Steve Bannon is American ISIS. That's terrifying. I'm now sitting here looking at the product of people being fucked with, and they don't even know it. When was that? Do you remember? You know, this was... Late in 2014, I left soon after that. And, you know, the first thing that they did was they tried to sue me. They tried to get me to never work in politics, never work in data, never work in all these, you know, ended up with a £50,000 legal bill. And I ended up signing this like super NDA.
3: Oh, yeah, these non-disclosure agreements.
2: Yeah, one that had like lots of high stakes attached to it. I actually then did go to the, the United States you know, and started talking to uh, people both who I knew from uh, American politics and some of whom were now working in the Obama administration. And I told them, like, this is what this company is doing. They're working with these weird Russian people and they're giving these lectures in St. Petersburg in Russia about, like, American voter targeting. The response that I got over and over again was, thanks for the heads up, but, like, You know, Hillary Clinton's going to win. We don't want to seem like we're interfering in the election because, God forbid, somebody interferes in the election. You know, I was like, what do I know? Like, okay, these are people who, like, work for the administration. They probably know what they're doing. And so I then kind of stopped talking about it because, like, the reaction that I got was like, yeah, okay, it's sketchy, but, like, whatever. It was only after Brexit happened and Donald Trump got elected, that journalists really started taking it seriously. It was only after the Trump uh, inauguration that The Guardian then got in touch with me because they had originally been investigating Brexit and this weird company called AIQ, which received 40% of Brexit spending from Vote Leave. They found out through somebody else that um, AIQ was actually a subsidiary of Cambridge Analytica. And where was it based? On this island off the west coast of Canada. And so 40% of vote leave spending got funneled through Vancouver Islands.
3: Oh, wow, where you grew up.
2: Where I grew up. And the reason it was set up there was because somebody who I knew from Canada, who I recruited originally to work on some of these projects for SCL Group, who then later stayed and continued on with Cambridge Analytica, set up uh, one of the many uh, companies in Cambridge Analytica's network on this island where we were both from. And it had a different name, as did many of the companies in that in that network, um, because you know it, it, when you work with data, data is a fungible asset just like money is. And so when you look at um tax evasion schemes, where you funnel money from country A to country B and tropical island A to you know African nation B, and there's you can obfuscate who owns it and take advantage of different legal frameworks and all that. They did the exact same thing, but it was with data. And so when The Guardian was trying to figure out what is this weird company that clearly had a massive role in Brexit, almost half of vote leave spending went to this island in Canada. Mm. And then when they found out that it was related to Cambridge Analytica, and actually I was from there, they like desperately tried to get in touch with me. And finally, a journalist named Carol Cadwallader got in touch with me. You know, it was the the first time that uh, a journalist, anyone really paid serious attention to what I was saying. And she called me and I thought it was just going to be like a 20-minute call. It lasted for hours. It all came out. It all came out. You know, she was the first person who really took it seriously and listened. You know, and reported and, it. And reported it and Very didn't roll her eyes going, oh, it sounds like a conspiracy theory. You know, I remember talking to her and going, you know... Sometimes conspiracies are real, right? You know, Watergate, that was a conspiracy. It was real. I at least had the foresight when I left to take documents with me. And I kept them. And I kept emails. I kept documents. I kept, like, phone logs. I kept all kinds of stuff. And I passed that on to the Guardian. They looked at it, and they were like, this is a huge story. It would be more powerful if you came out and talked about it, like, with your face, with your name. Um, Not be an anonymous source, but be a named source. There was a, a long journey to get to the point where I decided, actually, I should, you know, come out and speak out with my face and with my name attached to it.
3: You seemed so sure that you knew what you were doing once you made the decision to speak out. Do you have any regrets? How do you feel now? You've written the book. It's all out there. And yet we haven't really seen the prosecutions. There's real anxiety about what's already been done. How do you feel about where you, things are?
2: I think like anything, it's it's a it's a journey. A lot of people who are queer, one of the things that they say is like coming out is a process. It's not There's not a moment in time you come out and then you're now like out. Oftentimes you're coming out every day. You are constantly talking about uncomfortable truths to people and you're telling people in positions of privilege, here's an uncomfortable reality and you might want to deny it. You might want to look the other way. You might not want to see it, but here it is. And I'm telling you, and I'm going to keep telling you until you understand what I'm saying. When you look at a lot of whistleblowers, a lot of them are queer. A lot of them are people who come out and they come out both as a queer person, but also as a, as a whistleblower to tell people uncomfortable things. I don't know if you've ever been to like a, a you know, a pride parade, but people blow whistles all the time. Yes. It's like, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. And I am here and I'm telling you stuff, get used to it. Um, it wasn't just me that came out with, particularly on the breakfast story, Shamir Sani, who was um, another whistleblower who came out in the same story on for the the Brexit side of things, you know, queer Pakistani guy. Both of us are immigrants. I don't think it's a it's a coincidence that we are because when you have to uh, struggle to be included in a conversation, when you have to say, "Pay attention to me, listen to what I'm saying, take me seriously," and Listen to me even when it's uncomfortable to you and acknowledge me even when it's uncomfortable to you. That I think creates a at least it primes you to I think to be a whistleblower. And you look at other people, you know, like Chelsea Manning, for example. Yes, I was just thinking of her. It is a coming out. Oh,
3: thank you. In just in just a a brief answer, what advice would you give to people who have watched your experience who might well be thinking about whistleblowing on mm-hmm. wrongdoing they're seeing in institutions?
2: I'll give a boring answer, but it's honestly the only thing that's kept me safe. Talk to lawyers and don't do anything until you talk to lawyers, because lawyers are there to guide you to make sure that you don't misstep or do something that puts you in jeopardy. But the thing that I would say is that, you know, when people think about whistleblowing, often they think about, you know, whether it's Edward Snowden or Chelsea Manning, or often these sort of big lionized figures that take on, like, the American government or, you know, whatever, big, big, you know, corporations, most often whistleblowers are the people who, it's the nurse in your mother's nursing home who sees that she is being neglected and that the nursing home isn't doing their duty to make sure that she's cared for and making the decision to either to either stay silent and keep her job so that she can come home to her family and feel fine and safe and secure or to risk her job, her reputation for your grandmother or your mother. We need whistleblowing. You know, if my, if my mother was in that nursing home, I would hope that that, that nurse says something. But at the same time, you know, currently we're in an environment where like it is completely legal to just ostracize that person from their profession when they do the right thing, when they have so much respect for the work that they do that they are going to come out and say, this is wrong. And so, you know, one of the things that I'd also hoped for people to think about is like, it's very easy to point the finger at whistleblowers and say, oh, but you were involved in something. This Mm -hmm. is, you know, but it's, you know, partly your fault, or why didn't you leave? Or why didn't you? But if we don't create a a space for people to come out and tell the truth in a way that they feel secure, we won't have those people. And that might mean that your mum gets neglected.
3: Chris Wiley, it has been an utter pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much.
2: Cheers. Thank you.
3: You've been listening to How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed and the producer is Farah Jasset. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think of this episode by rating it and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts.
0: Hello again, it's Farah producer of How I Found My Voice. We really hope you enjoyed this week's show. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in to our episode next week. In the meantime, we wanted to give a big shout-out to our sponsor, The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you're a Londoner and want to get out of the city for a weekend, download The Out app for a premium, hassle-free experience. Choose from a range of cars including the Range Rover Sport and all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. The car will be delivered and picked up from your doorstep. You get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance and even the congestion and dark charge included. Download the Out app today.
1: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing...